This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, the Ukraine problem. Staffers within the State Department, within the NFC, they're providing good counsel. Former National Security Council Director of European Affairs Alexander Vindman says the U.S. government is being warned to take action now instead of later. But it doesn't seem to resonate with the, the cabinet-level leadership. You're talking about the staffers, NSC staffers, and it's not resonating with Jake Sullivan and people on his level and above. Right. And it hasn't carried the, the argument with regards to President Biden. Vindman, a retired Army lieutenant colonel, says it's not just the U.S., it's other Western countries concerned about going too far. It is a really misplaced fear about what Russia's actions are. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Russian troops have been parked on Ukraine's border for years, claiming they were conducting exercises to protect Russia from Western aggression. Now, it's pretty clear those forces were practicing for an invasion. Many of the sources I've spoken to say It's just a matter of days before it happens. One of those sources is Alexander Vindman, retired U.S. Army colonel and former National Security Council director for European affairs. Mr. Vindman, Ukraine is a problem right now. That problem is Russia. It's not a new problem. It's a problem that blew up in 2014, but it had been simmering long before that. Now we're at a state where it appears as though Russia says it's going to invade Maybe or maybe not. It's suggesting that if the U.S. or NATO does what it is that it wants, it won't invade. And then it's saying as well, if you don't do what I want you to do, then I may threaten you as well, including some things that we've seen over the weekend uh, with relationship to uh, Latin America, Cuba, etc. So let me ask you this question, looking at this from the 30,000 foot level, what is Russia's endgame here? Sure. First of all, let me let me just say that I've uh, my dissertations on U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine and Russia since 1991, this, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. This is all I've been, uh, been doing for you know really probably the past year and a half, and I'm quite depressed actually at the moment. Um, we've the U.S. has squandered uh, and and Europe the Euro Atlantic Alliance that really has squandered opportunities to kind of positively impact the situation. And what is that situation, which is the, your, the question you asked? It's that uh, Russia sees both a need and opportunity to conduct a large scale military offensive against Ukraine and a continuation of, of something that they started really in 2014 to do two things. One, realize a failed state in Ukraine and two, leave the prospect open of Ukraine being 
absorbed, reincorporated into Russia's sphere of influence. They started this, uh, they, they always had uh, considered that they had significant influence over Ukraine. After the, the uh, revolution in 2014, uh, they saw uh, Ukraine slip through their fingers and c- conducted a military operation to seize, uh, to annex Crimea, but also uh, in Eastern Ukraine, uh, on the, on the, not on the, just the Crimean Peninsula, uh, to uh, establish a frozen conflict to uh, realize a failed state. Even though they grabbed some 7% of Ukraine's territory and a couple million people, they proved to be wrong. Ukraine was able to somewhat, somehow cauterize that wound and continue to make uh, slow and steady progress on the diplomatic front with regards to reforms, with regards to uh, Euro-Atlantic integration. And uh, now, uh, as early as the beginning of 2021, there was another major uh, buildup of forces. At some point, it was considered a, dip, a bout of diplomatic coercion to bring the, the Ukrainians back to the negotiating table and have them uh, fulfill their obligations under the Minsk protocols. These are the negotiated um, agreements that were supposed to uh, reduce or eliminate the hostilities between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, after uh, there were two rounds uh, after 2015. Uh, and although Ukraine has actually largely fulfilled a lot of its uh, obligations, the Russians haven't. But the Russians want want to have Ukrainians uh, wanted to, to do this uh, build up, at least some thought to get to the Ukrainians to come back to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, in reality, uh, I think it's a different situation. I think it's a lar- likely to be a very significant military offensive uh, the largest in Europe since World War II. So you think this is going yeah. to happen? I, I think it's all but certain to happen at this point. Uh, last week, I was put on the spot and uh, put in a position to uh, make a, you know, make a judgment call, and, and I came in at eight of ten uh, that it's it looks it's likely to happen, and I see nothing, no indicators to the contrary that. Um, Come February, uh, Russia is going to launch a large scale offensive. February, because of uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is that you could still see the the and I assessed this, you know, some some months ago that February would be ideal from a weather um, perspective. The uh, the Earth would be hard frozen for uh, heavy armored vehicles to be able to traverse. Um, the end of February will would put Russia past the Winter Olympics in China. I don't think. Uh, the Russians really are relying on uh, at least tacit support, if not overt support from the Chinese, and they don't want to conduct another uh, offensive like they did in 2008 during the uh, Olympics, if you recall, 2008 were the Summer Olympics. Yes. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of an opportune time. Even the, the 2014 offensive against Ukraine occurred just, you know, days after the Sochi Winter Olympics in, in Russia. So I think there are a couple of political and military reasons. You could see the last bits of pieces of uh, Russian force structure flowing into place to conduct this operation. Um, so that's that's kind of the 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 the, and I think it's important to mention. I mentioned um, need an opportunity. The opportunity is also quite important in this equation. It explains the why now, not the why, but the why now. And it's the perception that the U.S. is uh, distracted. It's distracted by uh, a, a desire to, to focus on, on um, long-term competition with China. It's distracted by hyper-partisanship domestically in the United States. 
And there's also uh, pretty apparent seams between us and our European allies on what they're willing to do in order to uh, preserve stability in Europe, uh, support kind of the Western liberal order. And the Russians see all this and are, are looking to exploit it. As so, important as, uh, as seizing Ukraine is this idea of driving a wedge between uh, uh, the U.S. And, and European allies. Okay, so you, you, you're pretty certain, as you say, uh, that this is going to happen sometime in February. And I'm just wondering, how are Russians likely, the average Russian, likely to react to dead Russian troops in Ukraine? Because if what they're doing or planning to do, what you think they're planning to do happens, that's a foregone conclusion, right? Yeah, it is. But it's. Uh, I think um, the Russians are practiced at uh, concealing casualties. They did it in 2014 and 15 in Ukraine. They did it in, in Syria, in, in Africa. This would be on a different scale. Uh, there would be many more casualties. But I think it's actually, uh, it's hard to, to really judge how many casualties the Russians are likely to, to incur. I would think that it, they might not be that high. And I say that because the Russians are assembling a crushing force. Not a you know not even like a, a superiority um, uh, you know correlation of forces superiority but a crushing force to really roll over the Ukrainians and suppress the casualties that they're likely to encounter and this is not going to be you know there's not been anything quite like this since World War II let's let's just remember World War II was was truly combined arms uh, naval forces were involved air forces ground forces. All of these these elements will be brought to bear against Ukraine. There'll be aerial bombardments, cruise missile strikes. Uh, the Black Sea Fleet will be employed uh, to suppress um, Ukraine's combat power uh, on the southern shores around Odessa and where the Ukrainian uh, fleet is located. I, I think it's going to be pretty a punishing attack that the Russians are likely to um, inflict. And this is in spite of the fact that the Ukrainians have actually made fairly uh, significant progress okay. since 2014. They've made some some significant gains, right. but it's just not a comparison. So let me just ask a few questions here then. Uh, specifically, that's one of them. What is Ukraine going to be doing while this invasion is taking place? Yeah. So the things that, that Ukraine could bring to bear are uh, a high morale, at least initially, um, a force that's combat uh, tested and uh, uh, and trained. They've got some capabilities that they've they're developing. Frankly, in a way, uh, I don't think they're going to be able to rush to initial operating capability. But they're building these uh, these Neptune uh, short range uh, missiles, short and medium range missiles. Actually, they're right on the cusp that are supposed to be uh, employed against um, you know the equivalent of long range fires against uh, ground and, and sea targets. But those are supposed to be initial operating capability in, in March. I don't I don't think they're going to be able to really be employed here. And the Russians are going to certainly target that capability. Uh, and then the reserves that Ukrainians could bring to bear. They've got somewhere on the order of about a half a million troops in reserve in different states of readiness that they could uh, rush to, to the front. Um, but it, all in all total, uh, if Russia executes a, a skilled combined arms attack, it's going to be hard for the Ukrainians to to resist. Okay, so what 
uh, what about um, the Allies? What about um, Europe? Um, other forces? Are there any available, and who would they be? Yeah. So this is one of the things that that is depressing me. Um, there is very little appetite from um, from the major European powers to do anything to uh, deter or avoid this situation. In a way, this is this is going. To, I, I could see the outlines of historical events that are, have unfolded in the 18th and 19th century, 18th, 19th, and 20th century, like the partition of Europe, where um, uh, Prussian Habsburg and Prussian empires uh, and R- Russia d- decided to partition Poland. Same thing uh, with regards to kind of Mol- Molotov-Ribbentrop. There's a, a kind of a complicit uh, behavior to keep to allow Russia to seize some of this territory uh, with the expectation that uh, Europe is going to not uh, have its um, interests, economic interests uh, harmed in, in any way. And, and this is really, really troubling because I think the mistaken. So what you're talking that, about, excuse me, Colonel, what you're talking about here is kind of like a wink and a nod. In a way it's, it, it, you could kind of see some of this shaping up in that way. That's, that's probably pretty harsh given my my um, state of mind on on the fact that really there's little being done to avoid this. But I think it's we're not that far away. You know, for instance, let me give you a concrete example. Nord Stream 2. You, uh, the, the Germans are not willing to absorb any risk with regards to an economic impact in spite of uh, a looming major European uh, war. And to me, that's not that's only you know, some degrees removed from, uh, uh, so in, in one hand, you have Russia gaining territory, um, expanding its sphere of influence, undermining Ukrainian sovereignty. And on the other hand, you have uh, kind of a tacit wink and a nod from Germany saying, okay, you know, we're not going to get involved. We don't want to harm our, our interests. That to me is very, very troubling because again, my read is that the Russians' aspirations don't end there. They end with continuing to fracture not just the Euro-Atlantic uh, Euro, Euro alliance, but also uh, European cohesiveness, driving a wedge between Eastern and Western Europe. Because the Western Europeans actually, on the other hand, the great powers in Europe, Germany and France and the UK to a certain extent, no longer part of the EU, but still part of the, the uh, kind of the security architecture of the, of the continent, are... are not doing much, but the Eastern Europeans feel this acutely. Poland was the the, the target of um, of um, of Russian Soviet uh, aspirations on two occasions, and it can't it can't but feel disconcerted by what's about to happen with regards to Ukraine. Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia have already gone on the record saying that they'll support Ukraine and and uh, and provide weapons. I think Poland c- can't be too far behind. Romania, Slovakia, um, Estonia are probably not too not not too far behind either. So we'll have a divide between how uh, Eastern and Western Europeans deal with the situation. And the, this will be uh, one of the major objectives of, of the Russians kind of being realized. 
Estonia in 2007 was a victim of a very serious Russian cyber attack, which rendered that company, that country crippled for a while. They learned a lot, and they have been sounding the alarm about this for a good while. Was nobody listening? Um, I think that there was a, there were, were suspicions or uh, lack of um, coherent views on whether this is actually was about of diplomatic coercion versus uh, an actual buildup for a military offensive. Uh, I think if those were the if those doubts were there back in the you know March April time frame, and uh, it was easy for uh, President Biden to agree to a summit of sorts in in Helsinki with uh, President Putin. Um, and even in this this in the fall time frame with a, a, a another kind of a, a build up, a more concerted build up in preparation for an offensive. I think now it's it's pretty clear that this is not about diplomatic coercion and it's it's an about uh, um, a military offensive. So I think there's just a seems to be a lack of a, a decision paralysis or um, a fear about this conflict turning bilateral, meaning between Russia and the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's driving this this uh, administration to be very very risk averse. When in reality, that might be buying down short term risk. You know, the, we're kind of again granting Russia a free hand in Ukraine, but long term we have significant. Uh, national security interests in, in Europe and Russia's aspirations for Europe and uh, a weakened Europe are going to implicate U.S. national security and probably drive us towards a, a, a um, confrontation in, in the medium term. So it's just a really mistaken calculation on what we can be doing now, where the real risks lie, whether the Russians are, uh, their saber rattling is likely to amount to uh, an escalation with the U.S. directly. I don't think it is because they lose, we both lose in a nuclear exchange, but uh, they lose in a conventional exchange. Uh, we, we just have significant overmatch between uh, U.S. power and, and NATO U.S. power. Uh, so we there's a lot that could be done, and we're not doing any of it right now. We're just going to be reactionary to respond to this unfolding uh, catastrophe in Europe. Where is the U.S.'s problem in not dealing with this the way that you believe it should uh, have dealt with it and should be prepared to deal with this. You know, we've heard a lot of criticisms of the National Security Council, which is where you used to work, and um, you are very familiar with the way that works. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with who is running the National Security Council now. Jake Sullivan has been blamed on numerous occasions, Secretary Blinken over at the State Department. Where has the, the failure here taken place uh, to deal with this or to see it? Where's the yeah. where's the failure come? Where where, where, yeah. where did that happen? Sure. So I think um, you know uh, there's the whole buck stops here thing. Um, this is the administration in power, so it bears responsibility. But it should not be overlooked that multiple administrations over the course of at least two decades have underestimated uh, Russia's malign influence, its willingness to use a military force to achieve its uh, uh, aims. And very little has been done from the Bush administration forward to deter Russia from using its preferred um, its preferred uh, operations, lines of effort to achieve its aims. So it start, certainly started with, um, you know, the 
in the Bush administration with regards to the uh, to the prelude to the Orange Revolution, Russia uh, being heavy handed and trying to um, in place its own crony in uh, Ukrainian leadership and the U.S. really staying largely silent on it. Uh, after the, um, a number of different pronouncements by Putin saying that he would, he was prepared to use military force uh, it, it, to preserve a sphere of influence, uh, there was little to no reaction in 2008 after the, the war with Georgia. Uh, you know, there were some, some limited reactions that lasted about six months, and then there was an effort to normalize uh, under a reset. There was little done. I mean, there was something done certainly after 2014 with regards to Ukraine, but it was woefully insufficient to deter Russian aggression. Uh, sanctions were limited. We didn't invest enough in, into Ukraine to harden it against uh, further Russian aggression. Um, we didn't arm the Ukrainians uh, with lethal uh, munitions that they, they could have uh, incorporated and uh, incorporated at both the tactical at all the ta levels, uh, tactical, operational, strategic, and uh, under the Trump administration, I think there was much done both uh, with regards to a kind of affinity for uh, Russia's um, authoritarian nature and uh, preference for coercion from the Trump administration, as well as really uh, driving it, uh, exposing the, the fractures within the U.S. polity. Uh, that encouraged uh, uh, Putin to take action. I've said on a couple of occasions that if we didn't have a January 6th uh, insurrection, I don't think that Putin would would see the same weaknesses and same opportunities with regards to challenging the U.S. And even now, now it's it's quite stark that there is a there's an all but imminent um, offensive in Europe, and all we're talking about is punishing sanctions. After Russia conducts its operation, right. So nothing to prevent it. Nothing to. So these are. This is just a consistent pattern uh, of failures with regards to Russia. So this is the question again that I'm going to ask you. And you gave me a great um, long, long form, long frame of view um, uh, answer to that question. You know, where did where did that where where is the problem in terms of the leadership and in terms of the direction that this president's getting. You kind of gave me the historical view, but I need to ask again, are there some names? Are there some people in this administration that have dropped the ball? Yeah. So I'll start with the professional class. Uh, a lot of the professional class, uh, you know, the staffers in in the uh, within the State Department, within the NFC, uh, from what I'm I, uh, hear, and I'm not plugged in, frankly, I, I've kept myself at arm's length from from uh, from from the Biden administration. Um, that they're they're providing good counsel, but it doesn't seem to resonate with the, the cabinet level leadership, and it hasn't carried the, the argument with regards to uh, President Biden. I think. Um, so, so when you say when you say the professionals, you're talking about the staffers, the NFC NFC staffers, and et cetera. But it's not resonating with Jake Sullivan and people on his level and above. Right. That's, that's that seems to be my impression. That's sad. That's my impression. It is. Um, that doesn't seem to be my impression. That's clearly my impression. But uh, it's it's in, in, in that part is really not entirely clear. Uh, there is a historical pattern of senior leaders that are not immersed in Russia 
to, to succumb to uh, self-deterrence based on Russia's saber-rattling and, you know, the doctrines that they've developed about uh, uh, impacting U.S. decision-making, like reflexive control and things of that nature. You know, they, they, they execute a series of, of pre-programmed steps to indicate that uh, our, the environment's shifting between the U.S. and, and Russia, leading towards a, the potential for confrontation. And, and immediately you could see um, kind of fear creeping in. I saw it firsthand with regards to um, certainly in in the uh, early stages of, of Russia's war against Ukraine, 2014, 2015, when I was on the ground in um, in Ukraine. But even in the uh, NSC, uh, when the Russians attacked Ukrainian naval forces attempting to transit the Kerch Strait, this is just a narrow passage between Russia and the Crimean Peninsula to the Sea of Azov, uh, where, where Ukraine has, you know, uh, many, many kilometers of coastline and, and a significant port city. And immediately the response was uh, to halt all exercises, all activities that were, were going on there on the fear that somehow the U.S. would be drawn in. It is a really misplaced fear about uh, what Russia's actions are. If we believe that Russia is a, a rational actor, not a madman, they have no more interest in uh, confrontation directly with the U.S. than we do. And on that basis, there's plenty of room to, to act. That includes arming the Ukrainians. That includes positioning U.S. forces in Europe to reassure allies in, in Europe's eastern flank. So that's posture changes uh, and, and forces in Romania, Poland, and the Baltics uh, uh, to, to respond to massive refugee flows from Ukraine, to Russia's uh, uh, military threats that uh, you know, large-scale forces have in um, being moved into those regions. I'm not sure if you saw the reporting today, but those troops that are coming from the Eastern Military District, like, you know, 9-11 time zones away from uh, um, the uh, Europe's, uh, Russia's uh, Western border, uh, those troops are not flowing into Russia proper. They're flowing into Belarus to await the a Northern uh, axis of attack against uh, Ukraine. My question is, will those troops ever leave? Uh, it's, it's, I'm not sure if they will. Um, because that's another another easy gain for Russia to retain uh, significant influence in in Belarus. So I think there's just been some really uh, if we had a, a in the Cold War large cohort of experts uh, that were uh, that were well versed on Russia, we don't have that now, and we're paying the price. Former National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster told me in an interview probably a year, maybe a little more, year and a half ago, maybe maybe a little more than that, that one of the problems the U.S. suffers from is strategic narcissism. And this appears to be a perfect example of that, where there are those who understand um, that they have some of the best national security minds and professionals in the world working for them when they give them the advice that they're paid to do to give them, they don't use it. They ignore it. They believe that they know better than these people. That's what I'm getting out of this. And as a result, America's allies were really angry with the U.S. with what happened in Afghanistan. Then again, there was this debacle with AUKUS. Now this. I can only imagine just how livid the rest of the world, the U.S.'s allies, are going to be once what you're saying becomes public and people start understanding this as a general rule. 
as a general practice. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know, what is it that would wake these folks up? Yeah. So I, I think it's worth commenting on this idea of strategic narcissism. I think this is just general purpose narcissism amongst the, the uh, senior uh, political class uh, elites, rather than uh, what, what um, H.R. McMaster talks about with regards to strategic narcissism, which is this concept that the U.S. can determine outcomes in, uh, in, in places. Maybe this is the opposite, actually. With regards to Russia, we tend to fall in, on to, on, in, in an opposite frame of mind where we have no power to influence Russia. And I think the truth is somewhere in between. I think we actually have, uh, uh, especially early on, now our options are very, very limited. Uh, now we're facing the partition of, of Ukraine potentially, uh, as we've seen unfold in Eastern Europe uh, in previous centuries. So this idea of a kind of a post um, Cold War world, uh, the end of history, Francis uh, uh, Fukuyama's thesis that, you know, with the 21st, late 20th and 21st century are going to be different. It turns out that it's not that different. And uh, we're, we're letting these things play out uh, and we're going to react on the back end when when there are thousands of casualties, uh, tens of thousands of displaced persons. And um, there is a outcry to respond potentially. And th then our options are much more limited. If right now we could rather safely posture forces in Europe and arm Ukraine and, and take other steps out of crisis because the first shots have not been fired, how much more provocative would it be to take these steps in crisis, in reaction to? That's when the, the probability of bilateral escalation runs high, not now. And uh, it's going to, uh, unfortunately, we're going to learn a, a hard lesson about this as we've learned, uh, um, or we haven't learned, I guess, we've experienced, but we haven't really learned or internalized these lessons uh, in, in previous instances uh, throughout our history. And I, I fear that um, the wor world is going to be the day after, the world is going to look very different than it does uh, today. And we're talking about basically a month from now, <laughs> when this all starts. It's somewhere in the ballpark of about a month, month, six weeks. Yeah. That's really not good. And yep. so, um, all right, a couple quick quest questions before we let you go. You have, if I remember, you have a personal connection to Ukraine, correct? I do. I was born there. Um, I came over, my family came over in, in 1979 when I wasn't quite, uh, uh, well, I le we left when I wasn't quite four and got, got to the U.S. on December 25th, 1979. All right. So since you've been here, you've done some remarkable and amazing things, um, not the least of which was your testimony on Capitol Hill um, during the impeachment of President Trump. Um, and, you know, your military career, you know, and everything that you did getting you there because you don't just say, okay, I want to go work at the National Security Council, you have to be actually, I mean, there's a process to get there. And that that process is recognition of someone who is, you know, an individual who's outstanding and extraordinary. So you've done that. You've, you've moved on to do some other things now. So um, I guess the final question I would ask you is um, back to where we were with this situation. You talked about the squandered opportunities that the U.S. has had over time to deal with it, and I think you laid them out as we talked. But um, is there any way 
to stop this situation with Russia and Ukraine right now? Uh, if if our options were bad in the, in the fall time frame, they're they're considerably worse now. The kinds of things that are I, I don't I don't really think so. But the kinds of things that might on the might possibly influence the Russian calculus are um, there's a, a a bill that was introduced last week by Senator Menendez, and it's a very very comprehensive comprehensive bill that lays out a whole series of consequences and really prescriptions potentially even before we get to uh, the first shots being fired. That if that is passed, it, you know, it basically immediately by heavy bipartisan support, that would be uh, uh, very important. The, the president of the United States putting uh, a, a huge amount of skin in, in, to the, in the game and putting um, Russia on notice about the fact that this is going to be consequential, using the bully pulpit, and then uh, himself engaging with uh, European allies and, and getting them on the same page in responding to Russian aggression, that's, that's equally important. I think uh, the military capabilities at this point are probably not going to be significant. You'll get what uh, you'll get the effects of an initial um, operating capability where they at the tactical level, the Ukrainians can employ some of these systems, but they really won't be able to operate uh, uh, um, in, incorporate them into, into kind of strategy to really maximize the effects. But that could still potentially uh, unfold all of these things and probably having conversations uh, with the uh, um, Swedes and the Finns about NATO, joining NATO in the event of a Russian aggression, uh, these things might have might still have an effect. Hmm. All right, um, Alex Vindman, thank you so much for taking time to join us today. We look forward to staying in touch with you. Thanks. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode. NATO is a defensive alliance, and we do not seek confrontation. The head of NATO and a warning for Russia. We cannot and will not compromise on the principles on which the security of our alliance and security in Europe and North America rest. The latest on what may very soon be a war in Ukraine. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.